Bill, Chris, good to see you guys as always. So despite what the haters said, we have made it. We've we have successfully this is our last one. We've we've made it through Advent. Um so well done. Well done. I didn't know there were haters saying we wouldn't, but I just always assume yeah, I just I just always assume there's that they're out there. I think the but, point uh, of Advent is not that you've done it and now you can move on. I think you're waiting for something that's going to happen. That's good. But, you know, far be it for me to encourage you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, noted. I'll consider it. So we've, um, this is, like I said, our, our last in the series. We'll get to the text and the theme in just a moment. But before we do that, um, we will kick it over to Danielle and JP once again, which has just been such a gift um, throughout throughout all of these. So here they are once again offering our music for the week.
Bill, could you, would you be willing to read our text um, for us, the both the the passage from Isaiah seven and the gospel text from Matthew one, and then uh, maybe also remind us of the themes, and we can kind of launch launch right in from there. Wait, wait, wait! Before you do, I'm assuming you're going to say yes, Bill. But before you do, I need to let you know I have here in front of me, in honor of you, Bill, I have a candle that I'm going to light in this moment. Do you What's see what called? this is? It's blurry because you have a really expensive camera and it doesn't work. Oh. Now Chris Brewer made a noise, so I can't see it again. Black cedar. Black cedar. Crackling. It's a, it's a crackling wick. thing. Woodwick. So listen to this. So let's this is this is serious radio right here. I'm gonna light this match. And then light this candle in honor of Bill. Those of you who don't know, Bill is single-handedly keeping Yankee candles in business. Yeah, this is insider trading. You're going to want to buy stock in Yankee candle, everyone. I know a guy who's going to be buying a lot of them. <laughs> Listen closely. You can hear the crackling woodwick. I would also like to point out for our dear listeners, sorry, I'm I'm messing up your hearing this crackling woodwick, but I don't know how he's done it. But true to form, somehow that match that Chris used, I'm guessing, is some sort of artisanal special <laughs> match that comes in a box of one. Um, I wish you could have seen it. It was it was really something to behold. I've been saving that match for years, and it's done its work. I'll have a I'll put it back in that box and store it now. I this is and this is just because I think the spirit of you two has now gotten on me. I am a huge fan of the woodwick. I have mountain pine burning upstairs right now. Uh, it's a woodwick trilogy, but uh, that's fine. But when we're going to record a podcast, I've learned from our tech director at my church, Ian, that we shouldn't do that when there's going to be audio because it doesn't come across the way that it's supposed to. And it's like, I almost feel like telling you to blow that candle out. And it's like, I think now... I may have won you over a little bit, but you guys have won me over a little bit. Mm. Because... Mm. And now I see the flickering, too, on the screen, and I'm just bothered by it. <laughs> oh, and now, and now I don't want to read Isaiah or the Gospel. No, I'm just kidding. All right, Chris, that's amazing. I feel like that's the closest thing to a Damascus Road experience. <laughs> it's the most I'll ever influence you, and this is now my favorite Christmas ever. <laughs> Well, it's Advent, so oh, and it's, it's black cedar. So hopefully, Fleming Rutledge approves of lighting <laughs> this candle. When we go to heaven, and I'm assuming we go to heaven, and maybe after this, we won't be. But I think we all have an apology to Fleming Rutledge and NT Wright after this podcast. <laughs> not to Wright will still only be here. adoration. He's not going We've just been giving her props. Maybe, well, yeah. All right, we've got to get get to the work. Yeah, let's get to the Bible here. So, Isaiah seven. Now, now I'm in a giddy mood. Now I don't. Hopefully, this works out well. This is supposed to be hell. We're supposed to be talking about hell today. Isaiah seven. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Here then. O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And then we have our gospel text from Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The word of the Lord. <laughs> Praise to you, Lord Christ. So the contemporary theme for this week, the wood, uh, the, the woodwick candle, Yankee candle theme for this week is love. And the orthodox Chris Greenian, Chris Brewerin theme for the week is hell. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer's theme for the week is incarnation. And so being true to what we've done so far, today we want to talk about how the incarnation mediates the relationship between love and hell. And, you know, we I have a lot of thoughts. My brain's been thinking about this one since we started. And I think that leads to my opening question for both of you guys. I've been anticipating this since we began the relationship between love and hell uh two of the most opposing words probably that you can think of love and hell and i was looking forward to reading the texts that would be just filled with texts like we've already covered before today uh the wolf and the lamb, the swords into plowshares, right? No ravenous beast will be on the highway, no unclean person. But, and this is maybe a basic question, but with such an outrageous theme of can the incarnation mediate a relationship between love and hell that blows our mind, we get the absolute most basic texts for the Advent season out of all the weeks. You know, I can, I can, I'd rather talk about this theme, love and hell, with any of the other texts we've had so far. But this just felt almost like a letdown to me. Like these are the most basic, just before Christmas texts we could have. And then just so if everybody's wondering, the Romans text is basically Paul's introduction to the most complex book, maybe in the Bible, but it's only the introduction. I could think of a hundred text in Romans that would maybe get me excited to talk about this Romans you know 9 10 and 11 anything in there so Chris and Chris final week love and hell we built it up and it seems like the texts do they get us there do these texts help us talk about the relationship between love and hell in the way that we would want to or is the tradition at work in a different way heading into advent four year a 
I'll take a stab first. I, I, my, I'm convinced that every text of scripture leads to every other text of scripture, but that every text is a, as a door into the house of scripture. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter which texts were given except as you must, a, a, a you must start here agenda. Right. So I, I think these texts are, are not limiting for us. They, they just give us a starting point. And in another way of thinking about this to shift the metaphor is I think scripture is vascular, right? That the whole system flows Right, they are, and where you enter the the bloodstream is in some ways important, but in other ways unimportant. Once you're in the stream, you're going to be taken all the way to the heart. And That's I good. think these texts are an entry point, but it matters that we get to the heart every week. That's beautiful. That is an excellent, excellent way to describe not just preaching and reading the lectionary but any bible reading that we do seeing it as vascular and bringing us to the heart through all these different scenic ways that's that's excellent that's excellent good boy i love when chris goes first um yeah what do you think now brewer what's better than what he said (laughs) don't think it's a competition my god we are going to be, for our listeners, we're doing everything we can to convince everyone that we deserve hell and therefore have a right to talk about it. Yes, authoritatively. <laughs> well, I I mean, maybe we'll get into some of this thematically. Maybe it's because, you know, we're recording this a couple weeks, week and a half ahead of time. And I just preached last week and talked a lot about judgment. Um, But I guess thematically... You know, I won't add to what Chris has said. Perfect. I agree. Um, You know, but thematically, we're just given these, you know, pictures of uh, leading to the incarnation. And so for me, I just think it's, it's, it's all there. I mean, I think we, we discover in the incarnation, there's a few ways we could talk about it, but at least a couple are like one, we could, we discover in the incarnation of God who is with us to whatever end, right? Think of the Psalmist. I make my bed in hell and you are there, right? This is, this is the love of this God. But also I think we find in the incarnation, um, the presence of a God whose love can be experienced in or as hell in hellish ways. Um, that's, I, I think that's ultimately good news. I mean, I think that is the, that is the consuming fire that is God's life. That's <laughs> refining us and, and cleansing us and drawing us in into life and not death. Um, but no less, no less hellish because of it. Um, what was it? Um, it was a piece you wrote, Chris, right? A few years ago that uh, that was entitled God is Heaven, God is Hell. I think that was, was that maybe in response to Hart, David Bentley Hart's yeah. book? Yeah. Hart's book, yeah. Yeah. So that that's kind of where my mind goes, Bill. Yeah, I think Bonhoeffer's definitely right. The incarnation mediates not just 
love and hell thematically, but all things, and not not the incarnation and abstraction, but Jesus, right? In 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 the language of Scripture, you know, all things hold together in Him, through Him, and for Him, and in Him, all things were made. Nothing exists but what came to be in Him and through Him, because of Him, for His sake. He is all in all. Right? He's the one who fills everything with himself. And I think he is, he's creating something like a karmic relationship between all things, right? I, I don't understand. I mean, I know the ways in which we use the language of karma popularly. I don't understand the tradition, traditional understanding of karma well enough to critique it or affirm it, but just drawing on that notion of karma as getting back what you've earned, right? A kind of reciprocity or sowing and reaping. Like that's not for Christians. That's not some kind of law that's at work in nature. That's just a way of talking about Jesus responding to all things personally, right? That all things answer to him because he's taken all of it personally. He's taken all of creation to heart and he is nothing happens to anyone or anything that jesus does not take personally and once you understand that then of course he mediates all things right because it's it's a matter of of his own life his own story yeah i want to uh I want to turn you loose on this, uh, Chris. I remember in twenty, the summer of 2018, I sat through uh, an intensive that you did for five days on the doctrine of salvation. And uh, I, I put that in like one of the top five most, most obvious conversion moments that I've had in my life, uh, being with you that week and going through that stuff. And I appreciate you wrestling with me and all my questions through it. Um the only thing I want to say to start off here, and then I just want to, I want you to have your way with these texts and, and these thoughts, both of you guys, is uh, the one the one thing that gets me with this gospel text every year is the way in which we're trained, and I think we talked about this last week, we're trained to always want to look somewhere else to find the thing that heals. Mm. To, from From the large tradition of escapism and rapture theology, all the way down to our inclination to move when things aren't going well or change jobs or change relationships or, you know, hope that new year's day comes so that we can like start over again. And, and, you know, we, we have this habit of wanting to look everywhere else. And uh, as I've been saying all four weeks, you know, I watched the uh, British broadcasting um, version of a Christmas Carol, which is three hours long and it's very, very dark. Chris, you would love it. And, um, at one point, Scrooge says, he says, I can't stand the advent calendars because it trains kids to look deeper into the evil world we live in. And in the advent calendar, they find candy. But in real life, they're just going to find more evil. Hmm. And so he's saying he's even saying we got to look we got to train people to look other places than yeah. even the world we live in. And with this gospel text, here's Joseph looking at his wife and making a generous decision to divorce her quietly 
because every category he has says that she has been unfaithful. And then it says that he considered these things. And I think the most virtuous, the most virtuous quality in St. Joseph that we have is his ability to not make a snap decision, but to consider even the most obvious decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, a friend, a brother, I probably should consider things longer than I do before I make decisions. And in that pondering, the Holy Spirit says, look deeper into what it is that you think is wrong. Look deeper into what you think is wrong, because there's something of the Holy Spirit in there. Yeah. And uh, Bonhoeffer has this line in his devotional where he says, and then just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good in light because it comes from God. Our problem is our eyes are at fault. That is all. And so he's even saying, look deeper into the darkness, look deeper into what is, because that's the place where God reveals himself. And so here's these obvious texts, but when we look deeper into it, what does it mean that he's coming to save us from our sin and not save us from God, which is basically how I was raised, that Jesus came to save us from God, but this text says that he came to save us from our sins. So is there something deep in the simplicity of these texts that take us some wild, wild places? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think uh, not only does every text lead to every other text, right, in that arterial way but also every text has infinite depth because it opens out on the truth that god is right the the personal truth that that jesus is here here's an example of of what i mean like you you're you're noticing something remarkable here about joseph that he he doesn't make a snap decision even about something so obvious as this woman he's betrothed to is pregnant. And one of the things that's striking is that nothing is recorded about the conversation between them about what has happened to her. You read the text already, but listen to this again and think about what we're not being told. Okay. So when his mother, Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child. She was found to be, like, think about the passive there, the passive voice. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, planned to dismiss her quietly He's because he's unwilling to expose her to public disgrace. So we get a word about Joseph's reluctance to embarrass her, to shame her publicly. I'll say more about that in a sec. But I think it's stunning that nothing is told to us about how she told joseph about what had happened to her it, that i mean this <laughs> it's it's staggering to think that no attempt is made to explain how she told him what she had undergone or what she told her family wow right or even what she said to herself huh. this all happens in the darkness, right? Under the cover of darkness. And she, I think we can guess that she must not have said too much because he does, he resolves not to expose her to public disgrace, <clears throat> but because he's righteous, 
not because her explanation convinced him. So I, I think it's it's possible that she didn't tell him anything. That she doesn't even say to him why she is with child. And it says she was found to be with child. So that may indicate that other other things happened that led him to believe she was pregnant. She's not saying it, right? She's found to be. And how far into the pregnancy is she found to be? And it's, again, it's stunning to me what is not said here, right? But then also that it's because he's righteous that he's unwilling to expose her to public disgrace. A lot of us, I mean, those of us who've been shaped in in kind of, I hate to say puritanical because I'm not sure the Puritans deserve that critique, but any more than the Pharisees do. But sure. using puritanical in the way that we use the term in a popular sense, like we we tend to think that the righteous are the first to expose sin. Or that what makes someone righteous is that they cannot abide the hiddenness of sin, and so they expose it to public disgrace. But here, it's his righteousness that convinces him she needs to be protected from that public disgrace. And so, that's striking to me. Yeah. So look at the difference between St. Joseph and, and Saul, who becomes Paul. S they're both kind of doing the same thing. They're seeing something that categorically they're not wrong about initially, but Joseph can be gently spoken to by the Holy spirit and say yes to what the spirit is saying. Saul needs this like really strong, elaborate encounter that lasts multiple days to be able to have his mind changed. And so I think even with two of those great, you know, heroes of the tradition, it even speaks more to Joseph's character, I would say, right? That he could oh, be absolutely. gently reminded and not need to have, be blind for three days or fall off a horse or see a great light. He could be, he could have a dream and say yes to his dream. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't know, that's another thing here. We don't know what the dream was or how the angel appears to him in this dream, right? Who knows how it played out, right? In terms of the story that, that he dreamt. But somehow he recognizes it as a word from the Lord. And he, he recognizes it as a word that he is not to be afraid. And it's striking to me that that dream comes after he is resolved to do it. Huh. Right. So it's once he's he deliberates, comes to a resolution, but then goes to sleep on it, which speaks to patience. Right? He's not in a hurry to act on what he's made his mind up to do. He's going to sleep on it. And it's in that, in the darkness, as he's sleeping, as he's unconscious that the word of the Lord reaches him and he recognizes it. He knows what it means. Chris, just as an aside here, uh, I mean, I love this so much. I, what do you think it is? I mean, why, why? why is it that we have so many stories in scripture about this kind of God acting when we're asleep? Like, what, is there any significance we should take from that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, you get different kinds of visitations, you know, th there are angels who appear and then angels appear in dreams. Bill just pointed out, you know, 
Paul's Damascus Road confrontation. I think one of the reasons dreams, it, it I think it has to do with sleep as a little death. Yeah, when when we are asleep, we're practicing for being dead. And in many ways, that opens us up to like the, the causal joint where the work of God meets our own personal agency. That is reachable unconsciously in a way it's not reachable for most of us most of the time consciously. And this is why I think our hearts are communing with with themselves when we're asleep, right? We're always kind of talking to ourselves. We don't listen to ourselves very well. And when we're asleep, I think that our heart is at its deepest depth, our heart nearest the causal joint where we end and God's work begins. I think there's an openness that happens in that, in that moment, in the moment of, of rest, in the moment of being out that allows access and what's remarkable here is that joseph goes to sleep when he does sleeps i mean think about how many of us have lost sleep over lesser things much lesser things right but he has found out that his to-be wife is pregnant perhaps without any explanation without any understanding of what what has happened or why he still resolves to do right by her and then goes to sleep. And I think it, it opens him up. That's a sign of his heart's readiness to hear the heart of God, to, to commune. I mean, I'm sure we could, we could mess with this all day, but like, think about like Adam goes to sleep in paradise, wakes up in paradise and he and his wife make very bad decisions. Yeah. Joseph goes to sleep in he goes to sleep living what he thinks is a nightmare. Yeah. Has an amazing dream and wakes up and he obeys and submits to what's happening in his wife. Yeah. And then Jesus wakes up from death and immediately sends Mary Magdalene out on mission. And so it's like if you just play that theme all through the scriptures there seems to be this idea of sleeping and waking is getting better and better and better each time leading up to you know mm. Sundays. i love yeah like a kind of arc of dreaming and waking i love that i love that and that shift from nightmare to dream I, I think is is vital too two more words about the gospel for me one is that he is chased with her even once they're married and i think there's a relationship between his righteousness his his willingness to put her away without causing a scandal his patience with god his his readiness to sleep on it as we say and his willingness to deny himself sexually right that 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 discipline discipline's not the right word that regard for god and god's work in mary's life that makes him chaste toward her i i think that's a witness we've largely lost, right? And this is this is the holy family. And one of the reasons I think we've lost it, and this is this is an aside, we can't spend a lot of time on it, but 
one of the reasons we've lost it is that our understanding of the family and family values is wildly at odds with what scripture actually says about the family. And I think this, this tells us the truth, or at least the heart of the truth, the heart of all truths about what it means to be, to be married and what it means to be, to honor one another as husband and wife and, and to do what you did, Bill, and, and set that in contrast with, with Adam and Eve. I, th- I think is precisely what scripture's urging us to do. I had one more point about the gospel. But you, you guys want to respond to that? I mean, Feel free not to. I mean, I understand it's. I'm over here having a moment as a husband, like I got to do better. <laughs> <laughs> I have to do better. Well, and I think, I mean, not this dear God. I think let me let me say something a little perhaps a little rash but I think I've said before that nothing is more sinful than what we've said about sin and what we've tried to do about it yeah I think we could even bring that more to focus is nothing is more sinful than what we've said about sexual sin and what we've tried to do about it in in our circles I think we've we've gotten this almost entirely wrong and this story, the story, the heart of this story of how God comes to us in this, in this family and the way in which God comes. I mean, that, that's the other point I was going to make, right? This, the gospel passage opens that the birth of Jesus took place in this way. So there's not only the miracle of the incarnation, there's not only the scandal of it, there's also just the sheer awkwardness of it. Mary is found to be with child. Joseph, apparently, without understanding why she is with child or what that means, has to work through in his own heart what he's going to do. And only after he's done that does God speak to say, don't be afraid. Take her as your wife. And notice, he's not told that he's not supposed to relate to her maritally, right? That, That he's not supposed to have sex with her. And yet, he refrains right so the, i think there's something here about we should let this challenge not just make us want to do better because i think if we're not careful we'll want to do better according to the standards of sexuality we've internalized in our churches right be a better husband but what we mean by husband is an ideal we've internalized and i think here it's just about being open to god in those kind of deep, deep recesses of our heart and being ready to deny ourselves to, to make room or leave room for the goodness of God to take shape in, in the lives of the people around us, you know, to quote Bonifer again, like sometimes the best thing we do is what we do not do for people around us. Right. And some of what Joseph is, is doing is not acting, right. He's not putting her out to public shame he's not forcing himself on her sexually or and i mean not that she would have resisted him but just that self-control from joseph both before he hears from the lord and after i think is i mean that's what we have to hear i think and just, i did not expect this conversation to go this way but here we are 
in a in a brief in a brief lookup, the word for found, she was found to be with child. It literally says without previous speech to find by chance to fall into to find by chance. So it actually it actually lists without previous speech happenstance. Wow. Yeah. All right. So before we move to Isaiah, let me say this though. Before we move to Isaiah, I, I there's this line in Maximus, it's ambiguum seven. Jordan Wood, this is kind of the heart of Jordan's book, like the the, the core of, of Jordan's argument. Maximus says that the word of God, who is God or very God, wills in all things to actualize his incarnation. That's not an exact quote, but everywhere in and all things to actualize his incarnation. So I think this opening line, the birth of Jesus took place in this way is a reminder to us that the birth of Jesus is always happening and it takes place in a different way each time. Like it takes place uniquely in every one of our lives at different seasons of our lives. But I think it always does have recognizable patterns, right? So each birth is unique and yet I think it is always awkward in the way that God's ways are awkward. It's always scandalous in the way that God's ways are scandalous. It's always mysterious in the way that God's work is mysterious. And yet unpredictably so, right? So we we recognize it after the fact of, ah, of course it happened like this. But as it's happening, we don't recognize it because it's happening in the dark. Right? It, it's always happening in the dark. And that's why the self-denial, the willingness to sleep on it, the willingness not to sleep with whatever has happened, right? Like the 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 chastity that Joseph lives with and the patience. I, I think that's critical to every birth. It is. But Joseph doesn't contribute anything to the birth. What he contributes is what he doesn't do. Mm. I see that hand. You can put it now. <laughs> oh, wait, that's my hand. <laughs> All right. We, I, again, I didn't expect that, but like we said, the birth of Jesus is often surprising. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, uh, Isaiah prophesies to Ahaz. Scholars say, you know, that's when Hezekiah shows up. The war ends within two years. Everything seems pretty average. Your typical run-of-the-mill prophecy, it happened, we're good. But then there's that spooky line about, no, no, no. Prophecy isn't about what works. It's about something deeper. And you have the meat of that prophecy is the answer to this has to be high as heaven and as deep as hell. Yeah, And we know that the the literal historical hezekiah being born war stopping that didn't change anything it just it it stopped for a season obviously we know that the birth of jesus does more because it reaches higher and lower than yeah. even what maybe isaiah thought when he prophesied is that fair to say oh absolutely it, it's it's stunning to me this this little exchange because it's at one level it's seemingly, as you said, not much happens here. I mean, superficially, the prophet says to the king, ask for a sign. 
The king says, no, 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 I'm not falling for that trap. The prophet says, okay, here it is. I'm going to give you a sign. Some woman in your kingdom is going to have, is going to become pregnant. She's going to bear a son. And by the time he's weaned, by the time he starts to get a moral sense, these two kings you're in dread of will, the, the, their land will be deserted. Right. So it, it sounds simply like a, a, a kind of timeline. Uh, uh, superficially, it's no more than don't fret yourself within a few years. This the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. But first, the text says the Lord speaks to Ahaz and says, ask a sign. And, and the Lord says, let it be deep as hell or high as heaven. And when Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. This is not faithfulness. This is not a kind of faithful deferral of the moment. This is not like the dry bones moment when Ezekiel says, Lord, you alone know. Right? Can these bones live? You know. That's not what Ahaz is doing. Like Ahaz, it's a distrusting response. And Isaiah still responds. And he responds to Ahaz, but also to the whole house of David. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? You weary my God. And what's striking here is that I think Isaiah, the prophet, is, is suggesting, recognizing, not suggesting, recognizing that this distrusting response from Ahaz is bringing to focus something that's in the whole house of David that runs all the way back to the roots of the tree and reaches all the way out to the ends of the branches of the house. Everyone who's in David kind of shares this distrust of God, that God is going to trick us, that God is going to ask us and then rebuke us for asking, that God is going to lead us to disappointment. And this is what wearies God. That, that what makes God sigh is that we don't trust his surprises. That we don't trust that his leading is in fact leading us into the into open spaces. And then he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So like out of that weariness comes another surprise. I'm giving you a sign anyway, damn it. <laughs> damn your resistance your reluctance your uncertainty your suspicions and that is the promise of this young woman who's going to be bear a child and call him emmanuel right and of course there's a surprise inside of that even for isaiah and what i love about it and this is what you're what you teased just a moment ago is that isaiah in a sense is on the lord's side here i mean he's speaking the word of the lord but we now see that there was, even though I think Isaiah was not reluctant or distrusting in the same way that Ahaz was, he still couldn't see the scope of what God was actually doing. He was no less surprised than Ahaz was. And, and I, I think that 
that's exactly what the gospel tells us God is and does over and over and over again, right? He's always, always better, always better. And the fulfillment is, is always excessive. It's above what we could have asked or thought, whether we're Ahaz or we're Isaiah. The fulfillment, the birth of Jesus is always more glorious than what we could have wanted, even if we were faithful. And I find it interesting that it is Hezekiah who says, uh, I think in Second Kings, somewhere late, Isaiah gives him a word, and I, Hezekiah says something to the effect of, this is a good word, and then it says, because he thought that at least I'll see good in my days. In my days, yeah. And there's a, I think there's a sense when it comes to salvation and prophecy in a lot of church traditions recently where if the word is good for me, like, you're going to get promoted at your job and it's like okay that's a good word for me but it doesn't always speak to the people who are going to be demoted because i'm promoted right or you know the idea that uh that woman on facebook a few years ago during covid said you know when everyone is suffering in hell at least i'll be at the marriage supper of the lamb right um there's this sense in which like the offspring of that prophecy in its immediate sense takes on the tone like if i'm okay i don't really care what happens after that and Jesus is born to do something, to not just do something more than that, but to change that sin in us, to heal that sin in us that makes us say, if I'm okay, then I'm good, you know, even if it means other people are suffering. It's that famous line where, you know, I've heard a pastor say, you know, a truck flew into my lane and missed me and hit the car behind me. I'm so glad God protected me today. It's like, no, that's a dangerous thing to say. Absolutely. Right. And so this sign of Jesus being born goes deeper. And it even maybe heals the part of us that just wants to be okay personally. It heals something much deeper than that. Yeah, it's 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 Isaiah recognizing Ahaz is not simply Ahaz. He's the whole house. Yeah. This again, I did not expect the conversation to go here, but I, I was reading this week the story of the man, the blind man that Jesus touches and he sees, Jesus says, what do you see? And he says, I see men like trees walking. And then Jesus touches him again and he sees clearly. And I don't know why I, I could get into details of what, what led me to it, but I don't know why I'd never recognized this before, but there has to be a reason, right? That Jesus touches his eyes twice. Like there's a reason Jesus takes time with him. Yeah. 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 Obviously it's not most of the explanations in the tradition have been that the man's faith was weak. And so he, he weakly received what Jesus was giving. And, and there may be some truth to that. I'm not dismissing it, but, but what struck me this week is Jesus was giving him a sign of something he needed to carry with him once his sight was clear and that is that every person is in a system that has roots and branches like every person at the beginning of the gospel of john there's this exchange in which jesus says to nathaniel i saw you under the fig tree right bill we've discussed this before that fig tree is not just the tree that nathaniel happened to be sitting under that day that morning Right. 
it's the fig tree, right? I, I see you all the way back to Adam. I see your family tree all the way back to the beginning, right? I see you and your father and your father's fathers and your mother, your, your grandmother, you know, Paul saying to Timothy, I see this faith in you. Yeah. And I, I recognize it because I saw it in your grandmother and I so saw good. it in your mother. That one of the ways in which, and I think this is one of the reasons Jesus did not sin, that when he saw people, he saw all of us and he saw all of us in our fullness. Like when, when he sees this angry man, he is also seeing the child that was abused. Like he has both in view in the same moment, right? And he's seen the father and the father's father and the, and the wounds that are in them all. And the, although all the way back to the fig tree and what he's giving this man, I think is, and I, I think the text bears this out, right? Because the village says to Jesus or some in the village say, will you heal this man? And then Jesus takes him outside the village to, to work this process and then tells him, don't go back into the village. And we, we normally hear that as they are the reason you were blind. You better not go back there. But I think the point is, until you realize how you're connected to them, until you know the ways in which you share roots with them, don't go back. Don't go back until you know how you fit, where you belong, that you, in fact, are bound up in this whole network, this forest of kind of interwoven branches and roots. Well, I think and, you just described okay. in Matthew. So Matthew 1.18, it starts with the word now. Right now, I'm going to tell you about how Jesus was born, but that now comes after the genealogy, which is, I think, what you're saying. Here's Absolutely. the genealogy of brokenness. Now we're yes. going to tell you about Jesus being born. Well, and every genealogy is a genealogy of blessedness and cursing, right? Of brokenness and health. And recognizing how our lives are intertwined all the way back, right? All the way back. And it's God bringing us aware of that, right? I think that's what Isaiah is seeing. When he sees Ahaz, he realizes this is the whole house of David, right? And that sickness that's in Ahaz runs through the whole tree. But what's stunning is that I don't know that Isaiah could see that he is in that tree system too, right? That he's in that forest, that network. And I, I wonder if when, if when he says, this is wearying God, that's what he feels. He feels the weariness. Huh. And he assumes, well, God must be weary with this too. These foolish people. Huh. But in fact, the weariness of God turns out to be nothing but patience. Nothing but chastity. Nothing but that readiness to leave room for. And out of that comes this sign, this sign of a woman giving birth. And last thing, and this, this is not original to me by any means, but that the sign to the king who's fretting about other kings is a mom and a baby. It's not a warrior, right? It's not a, it's not a David that slays a Goliath. It's not, it's not a Goliath that intimidates an army. It's not even the hosts of angels with their swords drawn. The sign of God to kings who fret about other kings 
is a baby eating, nursing, and then being weaned, eating honey. So I keep trying to get you to talk about this, and you keep avoiding it and saying all these other <laughs> amazing prophetic things. So I'm going to try one more time to be uh, an offensive lineman who tries to create one more opening for you to run through here. <laughs> Isaiah, it, the, pre the presumption in Isaiah is that this baby, which is a great dichotomy that you just brought up, is going to end this particular war that we're having. And then when the fulfillment of that prophecy is spoken of in Matthew, it's not it's to end a war, but it's a very different kind of war. It's to save our people from their sins. So can you, can you yeah. speak to what that means that Jesus came to save us from our sins and how that is a sign that needs to reach heaven and a sign that needs to reach hell and how that's maybe different than Jesus coming to save us from his dad? Well, yeah. That makes literally all the difference, right? That's my block. That's my final block right there. Well, I, I think, you know, Bill, it's it's one of those things that you would hope is obvious, but I'm not sure it is. And even for those for whom it's obvious, at least the distortion is obvious. There's still this reluctance, this hesitancy around believing the goodness of God. You know, Julian of Norwich has this, has these visions, these revelations. And she says, you know, I saw that in God, there is no wrath at all, neither, neither small nor great. There is no wrath of God. There's no wrath in God at all. And that God does not literally forgive us because he never turns away from us in the first place. Right? That God does not have to reconcile with us because he's never out of communion with us. And I, I, I mean, I've read that many times. I've thought about it many times, but I still don't know that my deep heart can believe it. You know, that God never turns away from any of us. That the forgiveness of God is not naming a change in God at all, ever. It's only giving us permission to let change happen in us. I think we have to believe that God can save us from our sins. I mean, the problem with, and this, this goes back, Bill, to the those classes that you referenced early on. Like the problem with the way we've, quote unquote, traditionally talked about hell is not that it takes sin too seriously. It's that it doesn't take God seriously enough. Yeah. Yep. I remember that. Yep. Right. So there are certain versions of what are called universalism that don't take sin seriously enough. Right. They fail to, to grapple with the fact that the wrongs we do to ourselves and to each other and to the creation, that those wrongs have to be dealt with. They have to be made right. And there are no cheap ways to make them right. Like the making right of them is costly and difficult. And there are, you know, God doesn't wave his hand and dis and dismiss anything that's happened, right? George MacDonald is, is excellent here. Like he draws that line from the Gospels about you will not be released until you've paid the last farthing. 
like that you're, you're going to answer for everything. Every one of us is going to answer for everything. And that's actually the best news in the world, right? That, that nothing wrong goes unaddressed. Yes. No sin goes undealt with, but the, the doctrine of hell that I was given the aesthetics and ethics of hell that I was given was God can't actually deal with sin. All he can do is punish the sinners for it. Mm, Say that again. We thought of hell as eternal, eternal conscious torment, because we could not imagine that God could actually deal with sin. All we could imagine, and it wasn't even imagined, all we could fantasize is God punishing the sinners for their sins. What's being said here is not that Jesus comes to save us from the Father, anything like that. It's also not that Jesus is coming to save us from the punishment for our sins or even the consequences of our sins. He's coming to deliver us, to rescue us from the sins themselves. And we have to believe that he can do that, not give us an escape from the punishment due us with some by cooking the books soteriologically by convincing his father not to be just but to be merciful or or some other nonsense no jesus can actually separate us from what has gone wrong can make those wrongs right can undo the evil that has been done and that we have done without violating us or anyone else and that's what he's accomplishing right what we mean by salvation is the making right of all things the stripping away of all that is evil and unjust and ugly and destructive and diseased and the restoration and healing and drawing up into fullness that was intended from the beginning and that's all he's ever been doing all he's ever wanted to be doing and we have to have uh, we have to change in order to catch up to the the capacity we have we have to learn how to believe and trust that goodness but that that's what he what he's doing so i think we need a a, a doctrine of hell right we need a way of talking about how it is that god accomplishes this salvation from sin and i think hell names an aspect of that this brewer is what you said a while back right this is the consuming fire of god's presence hell is a way of naming what the goodness of god does to those parts of us that are dead that are alienated that that cannot sleep that cannot deny ourselves and it's painful but it's not at all harmful. I think it's painful. And in that sense, you know, that's, that's, that's the heat, the, the, the sting of the fire, but it's not at all painful. And it's not an accident, by the way, that the mystics so often talk about the experience of God's presence as a fire, as a painful fire. I was just reading this week, Catherine of Siena talking about her experience of receiving the wounds of Christ. And she says, you know, her confessor asks her, 
if, is she in pain? And she says, I, I'm in so much pain. I can't, I can't even tell you, like, I, I can't live with this pain because it's too sweet. What's happening there, right? It, what's, what's happening is an experience that's taking us beyond our capacities. But there's a line in the Psalms that God will feed us with our tears. That's what hell does. That's what hell does. It's how God feeds us with our tears. And the we we don't want to lose that. Right? We 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 need there's a reason scripture and the tradition have talked about this, but we have to recognize it for what it is rather than the nightmare that we've fantasized that it is. Not to keep actually, I'm sorry, Brewer. I, I I legitimately am sorry. I keep I keep jumping in. Is there? Do you want to do you want to throw anything in here? I apologize. Well, I think mostly just just an amen. I mean, I think this is, I think this is incredibly good news. I mean that, you know, this is the the hottest heat, right of of hell. The hottest fire of hell is right in the burning heart of God for what God has created and invited into God's own life. And I, I think Chris too, I just come back to this in the Isaiah text, you know, that, that kind of projection of God's, you know, of God's weariness. But what we actually find is a God who is patient. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and I think this, this is also part, part of this conversation. I mean, I think that that kind of patience with us can even be experienced in, in these sorts of hellish ways, right? But that God's just going to keep being patient with us and working yeah. with us in ways that don't violate us, don't violate who we are, violate our creaturely integrity until we can actually be brought into brought into freedom brought into yeah, the, theologically the, the key point is this god does not change god's care for us god's attention to, toward us god's desire for us and celebration of us that does not change it does not waver it doesn't wax and wane it does not change but our experience of that nearness and goodness and sweetness is is constantly changing and it's changing for all kinds of reasons that have to do with our faith they have to do with the ways others are treating us that have to do, I mean, again, endless reasons that that experience is changing. But what we have to hold to through all of it is that whatever we're experiencing, right? If we're experiencing what for all intents and purposes looks and feels like hell, that is not a change in God toward us. That's not some kind of punishment that's been inflicted upon us some kind of alienation from God. It is simply the way in which love, loving me toward my fullness has to take shape now because of all these factors in my life, whether that has to do with me and my my heart and my faith, or it has to do with my neighbors and their need, or has to do with just the gone wrongness of my generation. I mean, endless possible reasons that I'm undergoing this now. But I'm not undergoing it because God is 
changed his heart for me or changed his turned his face away from me i'm i'm experiencing the love of god and given where i am when i am this is how it is experienced and and when paul says i've learned to do all things through christ this is what he means whatever comes whatever comes i can do it i can face it i can face it because there's this unchanging goodness of god that i don't experience as unchanging i experience it as various but it is unchanging and i i can lean into that i mean that's bonifer's point right look deeper into the darkness This will be the last time I bring up this movie, but at the at the end of this version of A Christmas Carol, when when Scrooge is in the ghost of Christmas future, in all the movies, Tiny Tim dies in that one part, in the glimpse of the future. But the way they have him die in this one is he he falls through he's ice skating on Christmas Day and he falls through the ice, and because his legs don't work, he can't kick himself back up. But the way they show it is Scrooge is sitting at his desk where all of his sins were committed, right? And the, his ceiling becomes the ice. And so when Tiny Tim falls through the ice, he falls into Scrooge's office. Mm-hmm. So he's like hovering above Scrooge's office in the water. Scrooge is looking up from his desk through the ice, and you can see a church. Then you see Tiny Tim in between him and the church, and then he's at his desk under Tiny Tim. And in that moment, you can tell in the movie, that's the moment when I would say hell is working on him to heal him because he realizes not only am I beneath the church, but I'm beneath this kid who I thought was a nobody. And even in his death, he's still higher than I am. And that's when he says this famous line in in this version. He says, I don't want redemption. I just want Tim to live. Yep. That's the moment that absolutely Christmas future turns and saves him is the minute he says, I no longer want redemption. I want Tim to live. And I just wonder like, is, is that what we want to say where we say we got to take sin seriously? Like that's punishment that works. That's judgment that works. That's, I actually think one of the ghosts says we're going to singe you so hot that the stake of indulgence can be easily pulled out of you. Hmm. Right. And so I think this is what we're talking about. He doesn't save us with like this wishful thinking, naive universalism where we never face what we've done. We see deep down into everything we've done. Yes. And, and eventually say, if I don't want redemption, I just want the people that I've hurt to be restored. And that is redemption. Yeah. Because redemption isn't, something god does for us it's becoming god in ourselves right it's it's us sharing god's life god's character as god has always meant us to share it and nothing is more like god than preferring our neighbor's salvation to our own god cares more about me than god cares about himself and that's why jesus goes to hell absolutely and and swallows it right like death fits inside of him mm. it, it it tries to swallow him and finds 
he's indigestible right like the this is what lies behind you know gregory and others talking about god baiting satan into killing jesus for just this reason right because death and hell cannot stomach jesus he you know he's the prophet thrown overboard that ends up swallowing the fish right instead of being swallowed by the fish and jesus you know in the language of of the tradition he tramples down death by death he kills death by dying and he devours that that devours him and once again not once we're able to say that although being able to say it is crucial but once our deep soul is able to rest in that right once we reach that place that joseph had reached where we can sleep on it and allow the the depths of our soul to kind of open up in that dream space to that goodness of god yeah i mean we that that's that's when redemption starts to actually take hold of us right like actually start to shift us i mean you we've we brushed up against this so many times, but I, th- I think there's a reason that many of us, I'm assuming many of us who are, many of you who are hearing this right now, right, were, if not traumatized, something like traumatized by the way hell was spoken of, because I think the way we've spoken about hell speaks to the deep, the deep soul, that place where the, our our heart opens up to the heart of God, what I call the causal joint. And that is the place that troubles our dreams, that turns our dreams into nightmares. And if our sense of God and our sense of life with God, of the last things, judgment, heaven, hell, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, like if our sin, if we're troubled by that, if there's trauma at our core, about the end of everything death judgment heaven hell it's because somebody has sown the seeds of that nightmare in us they've talked about god and death and judgment and heaven and hell in ways that that has left us afraid of those depths afraid of that darkness afraid of of what we do not know and cannot see and i think the gift the spirit wants to give us is to not fear it to to recognize that you do not have to be afraid in this darkness that what you thought was a nightmare you can wake up from and realize it is a dream in the best sense right and that god's the sign god gives is deeper than hell and higher than heaven that notice in the in the in the word he says, ask for a sign, though it be as deep as hell and as high as. Right? That's all that Ahaz could ask for. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't even ask for what he could ask for. But what God gives is deeper than hell and higher than heaven. Mm. So he invites us to ask anything. Right? If you can imagine it, ask for it. If you can desire it, raise that desire. But what he gives is better, infinitely deeper and higher. 
Dude, this this is what I mean by when you when you talk, I think better. Like it almost makes me wonder, and and there's probably a thousand answers to this, but one of the things, maybe one of the things that made the Tower of Babel so wrong isn't that they were trying to make it so high. Maybe it's that it didn't go low enough. Also, mm-hmm. like we have this notion that oh, Babel, they were trying to make it high, high, high. But I wonder if God's looking at it saying, yeah, but those foundations aren't nearly as low as I need them to be. I'm going to go higher than that tower, but I'm also going to go lower than that tower. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Ephesians says that, right? That one who is ascended, the one who gives us gifts, the one who comes and gives us gifts is the one who ascended higher than the heavens. And also, but first descended. Yes. And what Jesus does is go down deeper down into the darkness, deeper down into the depths of hell than anyone has ever gone or could ever go. Right. There's that old story that preachers in my tradition love to draw up about, you know, on Holy Saturday, Jesus goes down into hell and gets claims the keys back from the devil. Right. I mean, there's something to that story. But what he does is more radical than that. He doesn't simply plunder hell. Right. He claims it as his own territory. He doesn't go there take what he wants and leave and leave it as what it was. Mm. Right. He makes hell God's own space. Right. So the, you you quoted this passage where if I make my bed in hell, that's what Jesus does is go to hell to make it a kind of guest room. (laughs) I mean, he, he, he lives there and he changes it, right? What happens to him does not change him. It changes whatever it is that's bringing about the happening. My God. So when he makes when he makes his bed in hell, when he acts like Joseph and just sleeps on it, it alters that into a space of rest for us. And this this is what Maximus means when he says he converts his, he converts the use of death. He also converts the use of hell. So right, look at fire. Look at Paul's in prison now. They when the when the jail cells open, not only do they not leave, but the jailer actually it says very clearly he rushes in, and when he rushes into the prison, now become heaven, he gets saved. Yeah, and so and that's what every resurrection narrative is too. No 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 narrative showed Jesus leaving the tomb. They're all about us entering it and having an epiphany that's in, right. uh, which you know in, in a tomb that's now become a sanctuary with the two cherubim and the mercy seat and right it's he's transformed that place not just he didn't just leave it you can now enter it and it's not what it was yeah that that tomb becomes the cave in which he's born (laughs) dude so can we play this after advent four so that i can plagiarize everything you've just said (laughs) i've written it all down (laughs) i want to i want to say it slightly worse so that i can claim it as my own you're going to end up spending time in hell for that. And that'll be fine. No. <laughs> My hell is going to be having to hear you preach forever and not be able to use what you're saying ever. <laughs> oh my God. Have mercy. God have mercy. Woo. Oh man. That's good. Man. It is so good. Chris. Thank you. I, I just God, I love this so much. So his, I I'm, I go to prepare a place for you is himself. Yep. He is the place. And and he is the place. And he is the place that is inescapable because 
in him, all things are held together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, Bill said this, was it last week or week before? Like if you flee the desert looking for streams, when you find the streams, you'll realize you're back in the desert. So there's, like, where can I go from your presence? <laughs> like, that's 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 not a cry of despair. That's a cry of delight. I mean, it might have once been a cry of despair. How can I escape you? But eventually, it becomes a cry of delight. Mm-hmm. God is the God we can't be saved from. <laughs> right? Like, you're not going to get right. saved from this God. And you don't need to be. Good news, man. Brewer, you say it every time you and Chris have a podcast, and I strongly hope people listen to all of them, even the past ones. At the end of every one, you say, all right, Chris, tell us the good news. And in one of them, I think it was around Lent last year, Chris was talking about Jesus saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying it at the Last Supper. And you said to Chris, all right, Chris, tell us the good news. And this guy, this Chris Green over here, blurts out, I was mowing the lawn listening to it and almost like just let go of the lawnmower. Chris says, Jesus was going to get Judas. And that's why none of the other disciples were able to go where he was going. And it's like, the more we can be free to at least playfully make those moves. Like I would suggest to people listening from my own experience with this, don't say no to it and don't say yes to it right away. Just tether yourself to where you are and just go swimming in it for a minute. Take a nap. Yes. (laughs) Follow Joseph's. Yeah. Just, just mess with it for a little while and start to ask yourself, is this more reflective? of an unconditional love, the sort of which only God can have. And the sort of which, if we're going to be made in his image, I want to be made to be this kind of person who can love that deeply, right? Just play with it for a while. Just mess with it for a while. You can swim back to where you where you are now, but just take an advent adventure into that place and just see what happens. Yeah, and I, I, I say this, we're talking about Joseph and of course that should put us in mind of his namesake, the dreamer. Yes. And awakening to say, surely God was in this place and I did not know it. I think what's emerging from this conversation, of course we didn't plan. I, I didn't have any intention of it is that when we, when we're talking about these things, we have to get down into that, depth of our soul that really we're only able to hear when we're asleep right like we we have to commune with our own heart the the depths of our heart and and this i think is where the child likeness comes in because i think children have a readier access to that depth than adults do We, we we outgrow that the, our own imaginations. And I think that the trauma many of us have suffered or something like trauma that many of us have suffered about heaven and hell and judgment and God, it affected the child in us. It affected our imagination. 
and left us with nightmares and fantasies. And what we need is to commune with God at that depth, not finer theological nuance, although, again, I'm all for fine theological distinctions and the working through the nicer points of theology. But, Bill, I think what you're what you're saying is right. What we need is a kind of immersion in images, playful, childlike, imaginative images that that begin to heal us at that causal joint right not simply give us better language or or clearer thoughts but wash clean have the depths of our of our soul right in in the cave of my heart the deepest cave where that where everything is dark and i can't see anything at all i need that to be clear in in a way that it's impossible to talk about neatly, right? It has to be imagined. It has to be dreamt. It has to be felt and sensed. And hopefully what we're doing here is opening us and others up to to welcome that. Let me, if I could, and I, I think with this, Chris, maybe just after this, if, if it's all right with you guys, you could just, close us out in prayer. Sure. Um, I don't want to add something that's unnecessary, but when you're saying this, I, I do just want to relate this to anyone who, who might be listening because I just, well, let me just tell the story and I won't offer any, any nuance. I made a move back in 2016, back to the United States. I'd been living in Germany and in that move, um, all kinds of factors were happening, but basically it inaugurated for me kind of the worst, the worst depression of, of my life. And it was kind of unrelenting and, um, unending. And there was someone in my life who I, I had trusted and asked to pray for me at several important kind of moments. And, this just incredible woman, motherly, um, maternal um, figure, and someone I knew if I asked to pray would pray for me. And I did. I asked her. I reached out to her and asked her to pray for me. And weeks later, she saw me and she said, uh, "I've I've prayed for you." And here's what I feel like the Lord has has told me, and I, I'm hesitant to say it to you. I, I don't really particularly want to, but that you need to go where the pain is because. He's waiting for you there, to meet you there. And that that was a difficult word. I don't have to get into all of that. I think a lot of it's obvious. But what I'm interested in for our purposes here, and just to share with 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 you two and anyone who may be listening, is that as I kept kind of meditating on that word from her and thinking about it, I started to get the image of God. It's hard to describe, but just to say, like, playfully enticing me, like beckoning me to come. Again, in the worst depression of my life, so dark. And here I have this pictureless picture somehow of God 
beckoning me and enticing me playfully. I mean, almost like, like a lover, you know, I mean, just, um, Chris to that kind of playful imaginativeness. I mean, I think, I think if you're hearing this and there's some, there's something that is stirred, whether it's a recognition of like, I I need healing from this, Mm -hmm. you know, trauma or, I'm upset and I'm not sure why I'm upset, you know, by this. Um, my prayer for you and hope is that you will find this God who's already there waiting yeah. and is no less where you are, but is just playfully with that kind of wink twinkle in God's eye sort of calling you. Absolutely. I've shared this with you guys before, but, n- but n- not publicly. So I, a while ago I had done a intensive trauma treatment that was a kind of mix of spiritual direction and trauma therapy and long story get into some other time but part of it is we I had to imagine Jesus being present in these painful moments of my life, right? So go to where the pain is. He's with, he's waiting there. So in this particular one, which we don't have time to, for me to get into, I'm imagining myself in the church that I grew up in, because this is one of the sites where a lot of my trauma has come. So I'm in the, I'm sitting in that church and I'm on the back pew. I'm just sitting there and suddenly Jesus is in the room. It's just him and me in this church that I grew up in. And he starts jumping up and down on the pews and then kind of bouncing around the room in this like absolutely silly, in the way that only a child five, six, seven years old could be silly. Right. And without saying anything, I had this kind of recognition that that playfulness, that playfulness was de-haunting that space. That's what hit me is that this has been a haunted space, but he's literally playing in the graveyard, like jumping up and down on the pews like they're a waterbed. And without anything being said in later in the in the vision, I, there were words exchanged, but that image, Brew, is what it makes me think of, right? So I, I think that's it. I think that's what Joseph does, right? B- Joseph and Joseph go to where the pain is and sleep on it right go to go to where the pain is and lay down and and let that depth of yourself right that that causal joint let it open up to the to the playfulness of god and see what he can make of it chris a while back i was visiting a church i know you know this story i was visiting a church and in that church, a uh, few pastors back, there was a pastor that was very, very, I don't, I don't want to say too much. It was just, it wasn't a great environment that he created. And we we were visiting, I was visiting at this church and we went into what his old office used to be. And I went in with a few other people who were visiting the church and his office has now been converted into an infant child room. And one of the girls who went in, she jokingly sat down on one of the little kids chairs and she all of a sudden begins to cry. And we asked her, are you okay? And she said, 
my when I used to sit in this office because I was in trouble, I sat on a very tall chair and my feet weren't able to hit the floor. And she said, sitting in a chair in this office where my feet can hit the floor, I feel like I would have felt safer here than I did the last time I was in here. Mm-hmm. And she said, it's amazing to see this office turned into a room where kids play. And it started to bring healing into her life, healing her from a lot of past things. So Brewer, your story, Chris, your story, that story right there. I mean, this is Jesus inviting us into our hell and yeah. saying, watch me play. Yeah, I mean, hell, to use the the movie, hell is the way in which the office, Scrooge's office, becomes this shelter for children, becomes a playroom. How do we get the sight of oppression and exploitation and judgment and cruelty? Like, how does God take a sight like that and alter it into a place of play? Hell names that process. Hell names the shift, the 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 reclamation project, right? The the renovation of our of our damned sites into playrooms and in, into, you know, the spaces we make for our children when they're about to be born. Right? Like when we're getting ready for Christmas, when we're getting ready you know, for a child to be born, both of you have, have had children fairly recently, that nesting instinct, right? That how do we prepare the nest for our kid? to be born to to come into the world and to experience the sweetness of life in this space like that's what god is always doing and and he he delights in renovating our most hellish places and it's it's light work for him if this doesn't want to make you sing the following week, joy to the world, far as the curse is found, I don't know what does. <laughs> I don't know what does. Absolutely. I love you guys. Somebody pray, please. Yeah. Somebody pray. Brewer, I think you should pray. You said you asked me to, but I'm I'm gonna kick it back to you. Mm. Okay. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, is there anything too hard for you? God, your life, your work, who you are is is good news. And it is good news for all of creation. So, Lord, I I guess I just feel especially moved to pray for those who desperately need to know that. And for that to ring out in just the deepest parts of their hearts. 
which is me too. I love how you meet us, what feels like even irreverently in these haunted spaces. Oh, come, Emmanuel. I pray that we could recognize your coming among us, but also the ways that you come to others around us and that we could cheer that on. Be there as midwives, helping encouraging others to breathe. We give you thanks, O Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.